We all love the sanitised version of the Christmas story, don't we? The version that appears on all our Christmas cards. I want to show you a couple of examples. This first one, I just want you to observe Mary and just how fantastic she looks. You wouldn't guess that she's travelled 100 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem on the back of a donkey over eight days whilst heavily pregnant and then gave birth without any medical assistance. But when she hears some hunky shepherds are rocking up, that changes everything. She's curled her hair, put on a new gown, applied some makeup. She looks remarkable. Look at Joseph, cool, calm collected, a man in control. We know he'd have been in the doghouse for not organising somewhere to stay, but no sign of it here. Look at the shepherds, kind, caring, empathic, clean, very unshepherd-like. Here's another example I want you to observe the animals. They are glowing, almost radioactive. They look more angelic than animal, no poo in sight. The scene is idyllic. It's too good to be true, and that's the point. It is too good to be true. Childbirth is a lot messier than that. Let me illustrate with a story. I want to take you back to Christmas 2008. B and I are celebrating the season whilst getting ready for the arrival of our first child. B is incredibly organised. So the nursery was decorated, the bags were packed. The birthing plan had been memorised by both of us, I might add. We'd chosen not to go for the home birth nor the labour ward route, instead opted for the UCLH birthing centre, a halfway house between the home and the hospital. Now, for those that have visited the birthing centre at UCLH, you'll know what a remarkable place it is. You arrive and the sense of calm is almost concerning. It feels more like a spa hotel than a hospital. Whale music can be heard in the corridors. Nurses float from room to room. Behind closed doors, women are in jacuzzis. I think they call them birthing pools. Soundlessly giving birth. Like the nativity scenes, it looks too good to be true. And that was our experience. It was too good to be true. On January the 10th, 2009, Bee's waters broke and we rushed to the birthing centre. We were welcomed in, trying to disguise both pain and panic. We didn't want to upset the atmosphere set by the whale music. We were shown to a lovely private room in which to base ourselves as the labour progressed. Every so often, a nurse would hover past. Anyone for a herbal tea? Peppermint, chamomile, Bee, you're remarkably brave. And sir, you're being such a rock. That last comment meant a lot to me. My name is Peter, that means rock. The comment went deep. Anyway, <laughs> on one such visit from the nurse, after we'd been offered another herbal tea, the response came back. No, but I'd love an epidural and my wife would love some gas and air. <laughs> the nurse then did some checks and suggested we might need to head over to the labour ward. So with pain levels rising all the time, we left the whale music and herbal teas behind to enter the chaos of the labour ward. We could hear women screaming. Nurses were pacing in the corridors. We were taken to a room and they placed a heart monitoring system around B's waist to measure the heartbeat of the baby. Now a baby's heartbeat is pretty rapid, but during each contraction it would slow down. Did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. In fact, it slowed down during one contraction to the point that the nurses began to urge B. B, the baby really needs to come out. We don't have time for an epidural. I know you're exhausted, but the baby really needs to come out. So you're really going to need to push. The next contraction was even worse. Did it, did it, did it, 
the heartbeat almost stopping. So the nurse pulls the cord and from nowhere, three or four doctors emerge with an extra couple of nurses. Stress levels were high, pain levels even higher. And with greater urgency, they kept saying, B, the baby really needs to come out now. The heartbeat is almost stopping. The baby's into distress. You need to push as hard as you can during the next contraction. And this was the point I hit my stress threshold. I don't know what you'd have done in this scenario. I'm not saying I'm proud of what I did, but with great authority, I pushed a couple of nurses out the way. I placed my hand on B's waist and in a loud voice, I said, in the name of Jesus, I command this baby to come out. <laughs> now, you should have seen the doctor's faces. You could read their expressions like an open book. Someone tell this idiot to chill out. Either send him outside or give him some gas and air. I'd actually been asking for some gas and air for quite some time. There was this one nurse, I'm guessing she was a Christian. She looked at me like this. <laughs> as if adding her amen to my prayer. Anyway, the next thing I remember is the arrival of this little fellow. Me, who'd done the whole thing without any pain relief, was whisked away for emergency surgery. As they wheeled her away, I said in a loud voice, Babes, I'm so proud of you. I'm going to buy you a DVD player. <laughs> I think it was the stress. Because the crazy thing is we already had a DVD player. <laughs> but nothing communicates pride like a DVD player. So for the next three hours, I sat in a room holding Benj. My prayers had been answered. Relief, joy and ecstasy coursing through my veins as I held our newborn son. I will never, ever forget that day. Now, some of you will be asking, what's any of this got to do with Christmas? Don't worry, we're getting there. Hold that story in the back of your mind. In 2008, the author Julian Barnes wrote a memoir on mortality entitled Nothing to be Frightened of. He opens the book with this line, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. In one simple statement, Barnes captures the mindset of this secular age, as well as the generational yearning for something transcendent. He summarizes the dominant narrative of our time while simultaneously highlighting the cracks in that same narrative. The results of the recent census highlight the decline in Christian beliefs. For the first time, less than 50% of the UK population claim to be Christian. More and more people don't believe in God. The results provide the data for what we all knew to be true. Nominal Christianity is dying. Cultural Christianity is in decline. And by nominal Christianity, I really mean the dead faith of the living. Practices, traditions, even some beliefs, but no personal relationship with Jesus and therefore no spiritual vitality. So as the dead faith of the living well dies... What is happening to those with living faith? It seems to me that spiritual hunger levels are growing. It seems more and more people don't believe in God and more and more people are missing him and have started searching. A recent poll from this last year published by Comrades suggests that young people are becoming more spiritually hungry and curious as they become less religious. Over 50% of those in the 18 to 34 bracket pray monthly. That demographic is twice as likely to pray as the over 55s. 
The 18 to 34s are three times more likely to attend a worship gathering. The spiritual longing of the British public, particularly amongst the young, is truly alive and well. The poll sought to understand why people pray, when and where do people pray and what they pray for. Here's some of the findings. Amongst the respondents who did pray, most said they prayed for family and friends, 69%. People who were sick, 54%. To give thanks, 51%. For guidance, 45%. Forgiveness, 43%. Other focuses of prayer included the situation in the Ukraine, 32%. The community, 22%, and the environment, 20%. Among the non-religious, in other words, those who don't believe in God but miss him, personal crisis or tragedy is the most common reason for praying. So when I grew up, the biggest critique of Christianity was that it was an intellectual crutch for the weak, for those that couldn't get by in life. Well, the last two decades has humbled us as a society. We're in the middle of a mental health crisis. Who claims nowadays to be mentally strong and have it all together? It seems everyone is searching for a crutch. When tragedy strikes or a crisis kicks in, most people look up and ask for some sort of divine help. Or in my case, lay a hand on my wife's waist and embarrassingly shout, in the name of Jesus, I command this baby to come out. Now, before you laugh at me, the evidence is now in. 50% of you would have done the same. Shame on you. You'd have probably done it under your breath and kept your dignity intact. The point is, when a crisis knocks on the door, lots of people pray. So what happens when a whole culture is in crisis, when a nation is in turmoil? That's the situation we find ourselves in. Still in recovery from COVID, we're facing an economic crisis, a cost of living crisis, an environmental crisis, a mental health crisis, and a political crisis manifest in the brutality of war. In fact, the 2022 word of the year is permacrisis, a fusion of the words permanent and crisis. It exists when people live in a permanent state of crisis, moving from one trauma to another. What do people do in a permacrisis? They start missing the God they don't believe in. They start praying. In moments of crisis, people look upwards and ask for help. Here's the connection to Christmas. The first Christmas wasn't entirely different to the cultural moment we find ourselves in. The people of Israel were in a state of permacrisis, politically, economically, and spiritually. The people of Israel were ruled over by an oppressive Roman empire who installed a puppet king called Herod. The Romans placed a heavy tax system on the Jewish people to financially cripple them and drive them into poverty and sought to undermine their faith by desecrating the temple and enforcing people to worship Caesar as Lord. So in their distress, the people of Israel began to look upwards and ask for help. And what did they pray? The answer is the same as what you and I pray in crisis. Help! Or more precisely, God save us. The Hebrew word is Hosanna, just sounds a bit more sophisticated. So Hosanna in the highest, we sing that in some of our carols, literally means God above, help us. Not unlike my desperate cry for help, they were desperately praying for the arrival of a king who could save them. So imagine a nation looking upwards, asking for help, waiting for the arrival of a king. That's the context for the first Christmas. But they had such strong expectations and ideas as to what that king would be like that most of them missed the answers to their prayers in the arrival of Jesus. The people were looking for a warrior king, a Superman type figure who'd raise up an army and overpower the Romans. But in a small town outside Jerusalem, a baby was born to a virgin mother, Mary, 
an embarrassed fiancé, Joseph. And it wasn't a palace associated with royalty. It was a spare room in the equivalent of an Airbnb with a zero star rating. And this baby wasn't simply a king. He was the king, God incarnate. The word incarnation, incarnate, literally means in flesh. Chili con carne, chili in meat. God con carne, God in human flesh. This baby, God incarnate, grows up. And Jesus begins his ministry by announcing that the kingdom of God has arrived. The creator God who spoke the world into being with the words, let there be light, he was speaking again. Listen to how the gospel writers articulate the beginnings of this Jesus revolution. Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah, the people walking in darkness, they've seen a great light John says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Jesus begins his mission to liberate those in darkness and introduce them to the light. He says, I haven't come for the healthy. I've come for those that need a doctor. And accordingly, he makes a beeline for the outcasts, the lepers, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. He forms a family amongst the widows, the orphans and those on the margins. And they have a common testimony, light and life to all he brings. From humble beginnings a revolution motors on and the crowds begin to follow, which creates genuine concern for those in power. The last thing the Roman authorities could afford was for an oppression, um, an oppressed people to rise up in pursuit of their freedom. So the Romans did what they always did to stamp out a revolution. They killed off the revolutionary leader. So Jesus was crucified as an insurrectionist, a revolutionary. But more is going on here. Yes, The Romans were on a mission to destroy this Jesus revolution, but Jesus was also on a mission of destruction. If Jesus and his mission was to bring life and light, then he had to overcome the enemies to light and life, namely death and darkness, which is exactly what he does as he journeys to the cross. There was no darker way to die in the Greco-Roman world than crucifixion. So Jesus dies a brutal, humiliating death. Darkness momentarily engulfed him, but something extraordinary happened. Three days after his death, he breaks out of the tomb and those who momentarily thought their dreams had been dashed started singing again. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. They probably chose a lower key and sang in Aramaic, but you get the point. (laughs) Over the next 40 days, Jesus appeared to his followers and continues his ministry. He then ascends to the Father with simple instructions. Don't simply hold on to hope. I want you to spread it. Continue the revolution. Feed the hungry, stand against injustice, heal the sick and comfort those who mourn. Draw the lonely into family and set the captives free and proclaim from the rooftops that the kingdom of God is at hand, that light truly does shine in the darkness and the darkness cannot, will not overcome it. Before ascending to the Father, Jesus said he would return to finish what he started. At that point, there will be no death, no grief, no crying, no pain, which means no sin, no sickness, no suffering. All things restored to how they were in Eden. All things made new. The story that begins with, let there be light, ends with glorious light. So what about now? What about the darkness that surrounds? What about the current perma-crisis? How do we respond? The answer is, 
look up. In our reading from Luke 2, the shepherds were doing what shepherds do, watching their flocks by night. But thank God they looked upwards. Now, here's a piece of art depicting the shepherds in Luke 2. As you look at it, I want you to have in the back of your mind the Julian Barnes statement, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. The current secular age doesn't really do God, religion, or anything truly transcendent. Those that look up waste their time. But something strange is happening all around us. People are beginning to pray. People are beginning to look up. In this piece of art, I've done what this secular age has done. I've chopped off the top of the painting, the heavens. Here's the full version. Thank God the, he- the shepherds looked up because they both saw and heard a message that would change not only their lives, but the course of human history. Here's what the angel said. Do not be afraid. You would be freaking out if you saw an angelic army. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of um, David, a saviour has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the King, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The shepherds did what the angels told them to do. Their lives forever transformed. This is what Christmas is all about. God became human. He lived, he died, he rose again so that we might experience light and life. Though he ascended to the Father, he poured out his spirit, his life, his presence, that he might dwell in us, radiating light and life. As the carol puts it, cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. Not far off, not distant, but near, with us in the darkness, with us in the permacrisis. So this is my encouragement this Christmas. Open up the windows of your soul and let the light in. As many of you all know, we've recently as a church moved into this, our new building, King's House. A year or so ago, it looked like this. The first thing we did in the building project was open up the windows and let the light in. Now it looks like this, transforming the atmosphere on the Pentonville Road. As a church, we also run a co-working space called Ark. They've also moved home to All Saints Church on the Cali Road. The All Saints congregation had moved out a number of years ago. The church had been converted into an escape room where people pay good money to get locked in a dark room without a key, whatever takes your fancy. The first thing we did as part of a building project was to open up the windows and let the light in. And now it looks like this, a place of light and beauty. What we've done to these buildings, we're asking the Lord to do to our hearts. Listen to these words of Jesus from Revelation 3. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. I'll close with this. The famous artist Holman Hunt painted this picture of Jesus based on Revelation 3. The piece painted in 1904 now hangs in St. Paul's Cathedral. It's called Light of the World. Like many artists of his time, he painted a white European Jesus, reflecting not the historical context of first century Judaism, but made in the image of a 20th century white European. So this work reflects some of the darkness of church history. But the painting also shed some light. This piece is the most travelled piece of art 
in human history. It is one of the most viewed pieces of art in human history. And the thing everyone talks about when they view this piece of art is the fact that the door has no handle. In other words, Jesus can't open the door. The handle is on the inside of the door. Reflecting the dignity that God gives us, his image bearers, to choose relationship with him or not, to open the door to him or not. So here's my encouragement. Open up the windows and let the light in. Open up the door of your heart, let the king in. For when you open up the door of your heart, you'll realise that the door of your heart just happens to be the gate of heaven. And to borrow the words from Psalm 24, when you fling wide the gates of heaven, the king of glory comes in. And what does the king of glory bring with him? Light and life to all he brings, for he is risen with healing in his wings. So may the Lord bless you and keep you this Christmas. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace Our simple response is to open up the windows and let the light in.